This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual Insurance. In this episode, we welcome Mike White. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting youth sport coaches and parents who help our children succeed both on and off the field. Each episode, our host Jim Thompson, CEO of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by professional coaches, Olympians, world-class athletes, general managers, and leading youth sports experts who share their insights from their own sports careers. In this podcast, Tina Sire, Chief Impact Officer of Positive Coaching Alliance, steps in for Jim and talks with former ASA Player of the Year and current head coach of the University of Oregon softball team, Mike White. As a parent of a, of a child that's not getting enough playing time, you need to figure out, okay, is this the right spot for me? And what do I need to do to be able to get more playing time? Is it my effort at practice? Mm-hmm. Is it my actual skill ability? You know, give me a rating on my five physical skills. Mike provides insight to responsible sport parents on how to coach their child. He also emphasizes the importance of encouraging youth athletes not to be afraid to practice something they're not good at, and the importance of communication between a coach and a youth athlete. Mike, I want to start off by introducing you to our Responsible Sports audience. Mike White is the head coach of the University of Oregon softball team. In his three seasons with the Ducks, he's amassed an impressive 691 winning percentage in the nation's toughest conference, the Pac-12. In 2012, he led the team to the College World Series for the first time since 1989. In the summer of 2012, Mike was an assistant coach for the U.S. national team that went 9-1 in the ISC Women's World Championship, coming away with a silver medal. Before taking on the head coaching role at the University of Oregon, Mike was well-known as an ISC Hall of Fame pitcher and a 30-year coaching veteran. He starred as a top pitcher on the U.S. and New Zealand national teams before he retired in 2007. In 2002, he was named ASA Player of the Year. Mike now lives in Eugene, Oregon with his wife, and they have three daughters ages 20, 17, and 15. Mike, thanks for joining the Responsible Sports audience and me today. Thanks, Tina. I'm very excited to be here with uh, this audience and to let everybody know a little more about uh, softball. Excellent. So, you know, being from the United States, it's pretty rare here to have um, boys playing fast pitch softball and for, for men to grow up and play fast pitch softball. And I'm curious if it was a little bit different for you growing up in New Zealand or if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got your start in fast pitch softball. Yeah, it, it was a family sport for me in New Zealand. Uh, my parents played, uh, my sister and brother played, and so it's just a natural progression. And uh, we don't have any baseball. So, uh, you know, when we started off in t-ball, instead of evolving into baseball for boys, we just went straight into fast pitch, and uh, that's where I learned how to play the game. And how did you become a pitcher? Well, that's a good question. Um, I first started off pitching, and uh, I didn't have much success. I, I couldn't throw strikes, and I uh, and uh, I actually ended up being a shortstop for a while. And then when I was about 12 or 13, uh, um, a friend started up a team, and I was pretty good size for my age, and he said, hey, you want to try pitching? And so I started that and, and did pretty well. And, and then um, I actually watched a game where, where Ty Stofflett and Kevin O'Hurley played in New Zealand in the uh, 1976 World Series there for the ISF and uh, watched them pitch. And I thought, man, that looks fantastic. I want to try and do that one day. And it kind of whet my appetite and got my bug to learn more about pitching. That's great. I mean, eventually you were one of the top pitchers in the world. 
And I'm just curious if you could give our responsible sports audience a little bit of insight into the mentality it takes to be a successful pitcher. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I just uh, was always one of those people that kind of tried to pull everything apart and try to figure out how it worked, if it was a radio or whether it was something I was pulling it apart. I couldn't always put it back together. <laughs> but I, I kind of did the same thing with pitching. I watched good pitches and tried to figure out what they were doing and what made them better than others and how they made the ball spin. And, and that was kind of where I got creative and started to try things on my own and do different spins and, and then asked people, you know, people that who I admired as pitchers and thought were good. I, I asked them, what did they do? And trying to put, build my own I kind of take on pitching myself and then just worked constantly at it. Uh, I'd go to school and I'd throw at school during lunch break. I'd go home and I'd find a friend, we'd go pitch. Or if I couldn't find a friend, I'd find a brick wall, uh, max some, some spots on the wall and try and hit the wall. Because um, after a while, my dad refused to catch me. So <laughs> Hurt his hand too much, I can imagine. Well, not even his hand. I think he's more worried about his body than anything else. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing to me is an incredible teachable spirit. And I think, you know, as a, as a coach, that's one of the things that we love most in our players is, you know, the people who are watching others and, and learning when, when you were watching other pitchers, was it mostly live or did you watch video and sort of slow it down and really break it down so you could see the nuances or, or how did you do that? The sort of watching others and, and pulling it apart? Well, I wish I could have watched video, but uh, you know, when I was growing up in the '70s, um, you know, and into the '80s, there was the there wasn't any video really available. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, actually, people were pretty protective. They didn't want to give away their secrets. It's not like it is now, where everyone's really open and they share things, and there's so much information available. So I had to kind of dig and delve in myself, and and really uh, take it upon as a you know, I want to be the best, and not just in my country, not just in my city, but I want to be the yeah. best pitcher in the world. And that's what drove me. Uh, with that competitive spirit and, and that uh, longing to be the number one pitcher in the world. That's great. Do you think that uh, your past playing experience and, and playing at such a high level impacts the way that you coach now? I think it does. Uh, and, and in some ways, um, you know, coaching has taken over from my competitive spirit where you know, I, I no longer could do it as a pitcher. And, and, you know, that's a hard time as when to call it quits because, you, you know, I didn't want to leave earlier. <laughs> I felt mm-hmm. like I could contribute uh, right up until uh, my last game, uh, which was actually for the USA against Puerto Rico, and we lost that game. And so the game told me when it was time to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, I took notice, and then um, you know I kind of got into coaching, and and I found that the competitiveness of coaching actually kind of took over for my competitiveness and and willingness to win, desire to win uh, at uh, the playing level. Mm-hmm. I remember when I made that transition uh, from player to coach. Being on the sideline, it's really hard not to be on the field in control and really being able to impact the game directly. Um, is that something that you've experienced as a coach when you know you're sort of on the sideline rather than out there on the mound? Yes, I, I think that's true. And, and you know, sometimes it, you get frustrated, and, and really it comes down to communication. You know, sometimes we expect players to know things, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, have we really communicated what we expect in the right ways? Because what we know, and from our experience, is not really necessarily what they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the tough part, really, is getting that patience and getting good communication, uh, getting players to ask questions, and, and make mm-hmm. sure they really understand what you're trying to tell them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me more about that, encouraging players to ask questions. Well, they're going to understand that, that you know, we all come from different backgrounds, and I don't know what, a, what one player has been learning for, for five, six years, and sometimes you could be conflicting, especially mm-hmm. with female athletes. I think they're very um, 
very loyal to their past coaches, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, in some ways, they feel like they're going against their past coach if they try something new. And mm. and yet, really, you've got to understand that you know it, it's you're not the same as any other player, and, and <clears throat> different ways and different ways of looking at things could really help your game if mm-hmm. you're open to that. And mm-hmm. uh, understand that you know nothing ventured, nothing gained, and you can always go back mm-hmm. if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so, so coaching in the Pac-10, or now the Pac-12, I should say, um, many people consider it the toughest softball conference in the country. And I'm curious if that fact is something that you openly discuss with your players and your team, and um, just what that experience is like of, of playing in the Pac-12. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, there's no doubt that uh, you know the Pac-12 is deep from uh, you know one to nine, and uh, with eight of those teams are right around the top 25 right now. Wow. So it is a difficult conference, yes. And uh, but that that again is like it makes you better. Uh like I noticed in the, in the men's game if we wanted to, you know, try and make it to the to the World Series at the end, then we had to play quality competition, uh, mm-hmm. especially pitching. If you're not going to see great pitching day in and day out, then it's hard for your hitters to be ready. Um and so that's what we try to do is is that even though we're in a tough conference, we know that uh, hopefully when we get to postseason that we're ready to play anybody because we've already seen the best teams in the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so is that something that initially attracted you to the, the PAC? I guess when you first started coaching in the PAC-10, it was the PAC-10 back when you were an assistant coach. And was that exciting for you to be in that kind of premier conference? Oh, definitely. Um, I know that um, you know I used to own a, a Played Again sports store, which is a retail store. And and it was also I was playing and lived in the Midwest for about 13 years, and uh, I'd content, contacted Ronnie Isham, who was the director of men's national teams, or well, actually USA national teams, mm-hmm. and uh, said to him, I wanted to really try coaching. I felt like it was the right time. Uh, Ralph Wheatley from Tennessee had mentioned that I'd probably make a good coach, and, and I really wanted to give it a shot. And um, you know, I, I told him at that time that I didn't want to start at the bottom. I wanted to kind of get going in the top somewhere in one of the major conferences, Pac, you know, Pac-10, Big Ten, Big 12, SEC, those types of conferences. And mm-hmm. uh, I was fortunate enough that Kathy Aronson, uh, who had just got the job at Oregon, was looking for an assistant coach. So I was able to move out. And, of course, Oregon is uh, very much like New Zealand. It's on the same latitude. Um, <laughs> so the weather patterns are kind of the same. Uh, you still get the four seasons, but you don't have to shovel the rain, so so to speak. So that was kind of good. Um, moved out here, loved it. I loved the competition. I loved working with good players. Uh, the ladies really wanted to learn. They were like sponges. They wanted to soak up any knowledge that I had. And they really enjoyed uh, me throwing batting practice to them. Uh, I could challenge them, yet try and make it uh, achievable. Wow, I can't imagine getting to be one of your players trying to, to hit off you. Um, what, a, what a great opportunity for them. So, so in softball in particular, um, and of course baseball, I feel like it's a, a sport where they're are a lot of sort of quote-unquote mistakes or, you know, plate appearances where you don't end up on base. And um, that it's really important, you know, after an error or walking a batter that players can focus forward and leave the mistakes behind them and sure they're going to learn from the mistake, but letting it go and focusing forward. And I'm curious if that's something that you intentionally sort of talk about with your players and if you have any specific tools to help your players when they rebound from a mistake where they're really focusing forward. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're on very true there. That is the most probably one of the most difficult parts of the game. That is a is a game of ma- uh, managing failure mm-hmm. because uh, if you bat 400, you're fouling six times out of ten, and it's how you're ready to go. And I think what we try to do is work on our approach. Um, so no matter if we're playing a top ten team or you know the next level down, 
we're going to take the same approach and, and we're going to ask ourselves three questions. You know, what was I trying to do? What went wrong? And what am I going to do about it? And try and take some of the emotion out of the result of the at-bat and, and understand it's more of the process uh, that we need to be involved in and, and understand are we controlling that and uh, not get too emotional and hooked up because you can do everything right in this game mm-hmm. and hit a line drive right at somebody and, and it goes down as a, as a no-hit, you know, or just another right. at-bat. Um, so unfortunately, yeah, it is, and and so we got to we got to look at that, uh, especially when you're playing in a tough conference where, you know, you may only bat 250. That means you're going to fail, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, three out of four times. So mm-hmm. it is important. Same with our pitchers. Um, we have to focus on on what we can control. I know it's an it's an old saying, it's an old axiom, but mm-hmm. it really is true. Uh, we can only control the next pitch, and we got to mm-hmm. learn from our mistakes and and hopefully get better. So um, two, two follow-up questions. You, you said it so fast, the three things that you're going to think about, what you're going to try to do, what went wrong, and then what was the third piece? Uh, what am I going to do about it? Because uh, in fast pitch, and I talk to this my team uh, all the time, it's a team that just first typically wins. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we all have game plans. Uh, the pitcher has a game plan, the hitter has a game plan, and, and how do we adjust off that? In other words, it's like a – and that's a good thing about this game is it's uh, – it's it's just not written on a chalkboard and you go play it. It's uh, you know you're it's, it's cat and mouse. It's uh, like playing checkers or chess. Um, you know the, the opponent's going to make a move and what do you do to counter move? And mm-hmm. the pitcher's going to make a move and what are you going to do as a hitter to counter move? And same with the defense. And that's what I like about the game. It's so dynamic. It's always changing. So so within responsible sports, we we talk with coaches about helping their athletes really pursue effort goals. And I think this is a nice tie-in to what you were just talking about. So like the difference between an effort goal and an outcome goal. So an outcome goal is something like, you know, wanting to, to bat 400 or, you know, only walk one batter in the game, you know, something that's very um, outcome oriented versus an effort goal um, is something that if you give 100% of your effort, you could always achieve it. So it's something like running hard through first base, you know, even if you think you've hit a slow grounder back to the pitcher or backing up the base, um, you know, when, when the throw's going, they're always being in the right position to back up the base. And I'm curious if there are other um, effort goals that you monitor with your team and if it's something you actually record and keep stats and, or at the very least, you know, sort of rewarding the effort, not just the outcome. And if you could give our youth coaches some examples of, of those sorts of effort goals. Yeah, we, we use um, um, the word QAB, which is Q-A-B, so mm-hmm. quality at-bats. It's a, it's a much better way to go about it. So instead of just measuring ourselves on batting average, it's all about you know quality of bats. How many pitches did I see? Did I see at least four four uh, quality pitches? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did I um, did I get a walk? Did I get mm-hmm. a blooper? That would count as a quality of bat. Mm-hmm. Did I get hit by a pitch? That even counts as a quality of bat. Did I get to a swing at a pitch I was looking for? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's lots of things. Did I hit a line drive? You know, those mm-hmm. are the things we measure ourselves on as quality of bats. And I think, you know, those those things are attainable uh, because mm-hmm. you can, can control the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I, I think that's a good way to go. Quab, excellent. Is that something that you picked up somewhere else and brought to U of O, or you you guys came up with that yourselves? Yeah, I, I picked it up, and and I got this off Sherry Camp actually, and and it's kind of funny. And you know, when we uh, when we steal from somebody, it's plagiarism, right? And uh, you know, when we uh, steal from a lot of people, it's called research. There you go. <laughs> So I, I like to steal from a lot of people. I go to see as many people speak on the game as I can. Um, I can always learn something new. And, and a lot of it's about creating a toolbox 
mm-hmm. that you have as a coach that you can communicate to your players. And, and as I said before, it may take me several times to actually get through to a player and find out, you know, what is what are they looking for? How do I how do I communicate with this particular player mm-hmm. rather than just taking one approach and getting frustrated as a coach? That's great. Yeah, if you try it once or twice, it's not working. You got to shift to something else. Um, I always I always joke that stealing is the highest form of flattery. So it sounds like you and I are on the same page. Um, what do you do, um, you know, as the as the coach or the manager, when one of your pitchers seems to be getting frustrated with the umpire? You know, that is a tough one. And typically, when I uh, and I go back to my own experiences a lot because you know I was fortunate to have a long career. But typically, when I was frustrated with the pitcher, it was when I didn't uh, didn't have my A game. You know, mm. and, and and then you, you, of course you know what matters because I don't have my A game, so I need a little help and. Uh, so really, you're just getting frustrated because you're not getting the help. And mm. uh, I think that's when you got to call timeout. you got to find a place to dump it because if you don't release it, it it's just not going to work. Your energy is going to be more into the frustration than into the process. And uh, that's what we got to do is find some way, an outlet. Now, if it's not your day and you just can't release that, well, that's typically when a coach needs to make a change. And, um, you know, that's that's my job is to see that in the pitcher when they can't let it go. But really, I just try to get the pitcher to focus on uh, the, the things they can control. That is, once they release the ball, they have nothing more they can do to it. It's really up to the hitter to get themselves out. And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. if the pitcher, if the umpire is not giving you the strike zone, then you need to make the adjustment um, mm-hmm. because if you don't, you know, you're just gonna you're just gonna be you know you can't do anything to the umpire's judgment of the strike zone. That's just mm-hmm. uh, one of those uncontrollables. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like um, that it, there's ever a place for a catcher to have any kind of communication with the umpire about the strike zone? Oh, definitely. And uh, you know the, the the catcher, you know, you don't want to overstretch things. In other words, you know, try to frame things that are not strikes by a lot. And mm-hmm. and really, it's just a matter of you got to make sure as a catcher you never turn back towards the towards the umpire. You always face forward and just say, hey, was that a little bit low? What if I brought that in by half a ball? Would that be a strike? Or, mm-hmm. you know, was that a little high and how much do I need to bring that down? And sort of put, the, put it back into the umpire um, as to give you an idea of what they're going to call a strike and what they're, gonna, what they're not going to call a strike. And mm-hmm. uh, it re- it's really about communication from the catcher in the right way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you feel like most umpires are open to that kind of the asking of those questions? I think so. I mean, of course, you know, I'm not speaking for all umpires, but those are the umpires who are the best. The ones that are open to communication understand that, you know, again, you know, we don't know what your strike zone is until you give us an idea what it is, too. So we have to ask those open-ended questions. What is your strike zone? Where, where do you want to see us do it? Because a lot of times, you'll actually, the umpire will make you bring it in and, and define the strike zone, and then they'll start to enlarge it just a little bit. And so really the first step is to find out what you're going to call a strike or what you're not going to call a strike, and mm-hmm. then I want to just kind of pepper those areas. Great, great. Um, when you talked about um, a pitcher, just sort of if they're getting frustrated, going out and, and talking to them about finding a place to dump it, um, finding an outlet, is that terminology that you use with them, like dump it? Or like, is that what that conversation sounds like when you approach the mound? Yeah, it's kind of like flush it. And uh, it mm-hmm. comes from Ken Viviza, a lot, yep. you know, quite a bit of that stuff. Um, Mental Book of Baseball, great book to read. Um, there's a lot of stuff on that, but uh, you, know, you never want to step on the mound uh, or the pitcher rubber until you feel like you're in control of your emotions and mm-hmm. what you want to do. You know, get behind it, think about it, dump it, and then get back on and refocus and go. That's great. Um, 
I've had the opportunity to sit down with Ken a few times. What a great guy. What a, just a total fund of knowledge there. Um, so, so what advice would you give a youth sports parents, like a, you know, youth softball, uh, parent who maybe doesn't think that her daughter's getting enough playing time and wants to go talk to the coach about it? You know, I think that is really one of the toughest things in sports. You've got to encourage your, your, your daughter or your, your son to, to find the right time to speak to your coach. You know, if the coach is not open to those types of conversations, then possibly it's another time to look for a different place to play. And, and you've got to look at the situation because there could be a team where, you know, you want to be on the top team in the city, mm-hmm. top team in the state or whatever, and there's going to be more competition for playing time. Uh, that's one, one way to look at it. And the other way is, like, I want to just play and I want to play all the time. And so you may want to play a little step down. Sure. Uh, and and there's, there's places for all those players that want to play. But as a, as a parent of a, of a child that's not getting enough playing time, you need to figure out, okay, is this the right spot for me? And what do I need to do to be able to get more playing time? Is it my effort at practice? Mm-hmm. Is it my actual skill ability? You know, give me a rating on my five physical skills. You know, um, what's my, uh, can I hit for power? Can I hit for average? Uh, how fast do I run? Uh, how, how strong is my overhand throw? Uh, how good is my fielding? Those mm-hmm. are the five physical tools that we look for when we're recruiting softball players and also baseball uses the same five physical tools. And rate me in those five areas. Let me know where I'm weak and who do I need to beat out or, or you know, what level do I need to get to to be able to compete and play on this team. So, so I, you were quick there, but I think you said, can, can they hit for power, for average? Are they fast? Do they have a strong throw? And their fielding ability are the, the, five, the five tools or physical skills. Um, and I love like the idea of the, the player going to the coach and asking, um, you know, what do you need to see from me um, rather than the parent jumping in. So I think, you know, with three daughters, I think you've actually had the chance to coach your own daughters. And it turns out that in youth sports, a lot of parents are actually – coaches and a lot of coaches are coaching their own kids and I'm curious what advice you could give um, responsible sports parents about successfully coaching their own kids well you know it's kind of like a, a trial you know learn by trial and in error a little bit you know I wasn't uh, I, I used to get frustrated um, you know as a parent coach I, I want my kids to do better than what they're doing and you, you, you know you kind of want to put them on the fast forward track and mm-hmm. what you're really going to do is put on your your coach's hat Mm-hmm. Um, and your, and take off your dad hat and mm-hmm. vice versa. So in other words, um, and my wife said this to me one time when I was coaching my daughter. She said, you know, you wouldn't treat your student that way, so why are you treating your daughter that way? And that was a really good point. And, uh, and so I took that to heart a little bit and tried to use empathy and understand, you know, what am I really communicating to my daughter slash student as a coach? And uh, I think that really helps. And um, I also use another thing when I'm trying to teach kids how to pitch um, is that uh, it's kind of like, you know, I'm a right-handed writer, and, um, you know, if you're trying to teach me to, to write left-handed, I know what I want to do with my left hand. I haven't created the muscular neuropathways to be able to write with my left hand. So when I'm teaching a new skill, especially in softball or pitching or hitting, it's very difficult sometimes to create those neuromuscular pathways, and mm-hmm. you have to understand it takes a lot of time, so... You need to be more patient, when, especially mm-hmm. in the learning process. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's a good tip. Um, so, so I know right now softball is not currently an Olympic sport. And um, I know for a lot of us that are fans of softball, this has been a really tough time. What do you think the future holds for international softball and, um, you know, and, and our players in the U.S. who are really aspiring to be Olympians? 
Yeah, and, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of it, it's very political right now, especially at that level. Um, and really, you have to kind of categorize it into two things: is the international and and the and the you know college game. I think the college game is ex- exceptionally strong right now. I mean, it seems to be building upon itself. Um, crowds at the College World Series are huge. Mm-hmm. It's just the international game that we need to to broaden a little bit. And uh, if you look at the competition out there, it's getting better. Um, we just don't have that open venue of the Olympic Games. And um, I don't know if it'll ever come about, but somehow we need to be able to create our own venue, our own bigger version of the World Championships. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as other teams get better, um, then hopefully we'll, it will self-promote itself. But at this current time, um, that's going to be a tough one to get back into the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I just have one more question for you, and um, it has to do with just thinking out into the future about as you have um, U of O players, you know, alumni coming back to you and, and visiting you and visiting the program down the road many years out. Uh, what sorts of things would you want them to be telling you that they remember about their experience um, playing on your team and um, being part of your, your softball community? I think one of the biggest things is I enjoyed my time. You know, mm-hmm. at, at the University of Oregon, I enjoyed playing softball, mm-hmm. and I think that's huge because there's so many uh, carryovers or commonalities between sports and life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not always smooth sailing; it's the ability to handle disappointment and failure, mm-hmm. and the ability to get on with other people. You know, people that you may not like, but you yet have to <laughs> respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we all have our own views and opinions of everything. And, uh, one of the things we make sure we try to do when we go as a team as a de- to dinner and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, there's no cell phones out anymore. There's no texting. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's kind of different for them. We have to communicate uh, by you know using our voices at, at uh, dinner. Wow. Kind of like the old way of doing things. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, when they come back, um, I want to hear from them that they enjoyed their time, they learned something. Um, from us uh, as a coaching staff and uh, that they enjoyed it. So so how did you come to this decision about no, no cell phones, no texting at, at team dinner? Well, I just think that everyone was coming very, almost like shy. They didn't really know how to communicate with other people you mm-hmm. know, and talk mm-hmm. about other things and get interested in other people's lives. Everything Yikes. was coming pretty self-centered. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, you know, and and you find yourself doing it too. You know, I mean, you go home and you get on the internet and you start surfing the internet for a couple of hours or doing emails and everything else, and you forget yeah. about family time. Right. Um, so I think that's real important that we understand there's a there's a time and a place for that sort of thing um, because it is part of our daily lives now. I mean, I can't tell you how many emails I deal with every day and text messaging and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember when I first got text texting, I thought I'll never use that. I mean, who who wants to text and now it's uh, we'd rather text than make a phone call, mm-hmm. um, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy, but um, you know, hopefully it, it doesn't get too carried away, and we keep it at the right time, right place. Yeah. Well, Mike, we're gonna we'll end on that major social commentary note, um, which I think is a, a great takeaway. I do think, you know, I can't resist saying I do think sports are one of the few places where we don't see the cell phones anymore. Where when kids are out there on the field, they're not not holding their cell phone. Um, so as coaches, we really do have a unique. Um, angle there, I think, to keep talking about communication and and how to do things um, without the phones. So, Mike, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking this time out today to share with the Responsible Sports audience and me. And I really think a lot of your coaching and playing insights um, will help all the the parents and the coaches and the student athletes who are out there listening. So um, best of luck at U of O and, and thanks again for joining us today. 
Thank you very much. To learn more about Responsible Sports, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find valuable Responsible Sport parenting and Responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and helpful advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.